Hey, funny people. Thanks for joining me here on this episode of Four Cents of Podcast. We're going to have some fun because I've got something to talk about. So stay tuned. Hello, funny people, and welcome once again to Four Cents of Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Martinez-Gaspier, and this is The Reader's Corner. So, last week, uh, in celebration of what would have been Ray Bradbury's 101st birthday, I read you one of his stories called The Long Rain, and I talked very briefly uh, about, and I think I misspoke. I, I think at some point in the introduction I said that his birthday was going to be that Friday. It was actually this past Sunday, uh, August the 22nd. Also happened to be Dorothy Parker's birthday, by the way. These are the funny things you find out when you're obsessed with writers and you love talking about them and their work is the fact that some writers actually have the same birthday. Yeah, Dorothy Parker was about three decades older or so than Bradbury. Not quite that. She was born in, I think, like 1893. Um, whereas he was born in 1920. So that's a, a little less, like 27 years older. Anyway, uh, at the end of that episode, I got to talking about one of Bradbury's major influences, Thomas Wolfe and uh, how he was one of the authors who really heavily influenced Bradbury's uh, lyrical writing style. But he wasn't the only one. And I think, oddly enough, even though Thomas Wolfe was certainly one of the writers who influenced Bradbury's style, he did not influence his style um, to the extent that I think this, uh, the author I want to talk about this week influenced his style. Uh, as well as the form he chose. And the writer I want to talk about is none other than an author by the name of Eudora Welty. She's not nearly as much of a household name as some of the authors that I've talked about in this series. She's actually rather obscure. She's rather obscure when you compare her certainly to Bradbury, possibly to Ellison, certainly to Ursula K. Le Guin. And yet, Eudora Welty is probably one of the best American short story writers out there. Uh, She only died in 2001. And uh, she made a reputation for herself writing short fiction. And she did write a handful of novels. In fact, she won the Pulitzer Prize at one point for a very short novel called The Optimist's Daughter. But it was in the short story where she first made her reputation and established herself as a literary tour de force. She was born in Jackson, Mississippi, and pretty much lived there almost her entire life. She was one of those authors who was very much, like a lot of Southern writers, as a matter of fact, she was very much rooted in a given place. Uh, And even though she did travel, uh, she did travel a little in her life over to Europe and She did go up to New York a few times, and she did uh, attend school, I believe it was in Wisconsin, actually, when she she went to college. But she eventually made her way back to Jackson, Mississippi, and lived in the family house, which is still to this day considered a national landmark. I think it was actually declared as such. It's a historical landmark, at least in the state of Mississippi, and it's been preserved 
by a society devoted to preserving Eudora's life, Eudora's work. For whatever reason, and we never know why authors choose the forms or choose their subject matter, Eudora was always influenced by the world she saw around her, by the world of Jackson, Mississippi, by the world of the South of her youth, um, and it, it's all over her work. Pretty much all of her work is set in the South. That's That was the milieu that she was most familiar with, and she wrote largely realistic stories, some of them with a certain kind of comic tinge, and a few of them even with uh, fairy tale or almost... Um, Mythic, mythic elements sort of laced in, but in very subtle ways. Um, and she typifies this in a lot of her, a lot of her short stories. She has a short story called *The Petrified Man*, which is uh, really just a, a story about marriage. And it's, but it's a story that features a man, the, the petrified man, which is sort of a reference to the, to the tale of Medusa in Greek mythology. She frequently references a lot of Greek myths and stories, uh, classical stories, um, in her in her story in her fiction. Um, there's another, uh, you know, one of her first longer pieces of fiction was a story called *The Robber Bridegroom*, which used the original fairy tale from the Brothers Grimm, which anybody who's read the original fairy tale, The Robber Bridegroom, it's it's a really gory story. I mean, it's about... Um, <laughs> but she takes that and then roots it in Southern reality. But it, it, it's, about, it's about a guy who comes to town, tries to marry this woman, and then only to discover that she is actually going to be taken into the woods and basically eaten. It's a story about cannibalism. <laughs> And Eudora Weldy used that as the basis of, of to write a novel. Can you believe that? Uh, but she did. She's always been influenced by by works like that um, in, in that way. But she takes it and then she roots it in this southern reality. And she was also influenced very heavily by another art form that she was equally gifted at, which was photography. I've said this uh, a couple of times in my life, but, you know, the short story in many ways is very akin to a very small series of photographs. It's kind of snapshots. You're seeing one image that implies a whole life and and insinuates that and infers that there will be a future to that image. Um, and Eudora was a master of that. She was a master of that. But what made her such a strong influence on other writers who read her was her ability to convey place in such concision, with such concision. And so what I let me let me give you an idea of that by reading you an excerpt from one of her one of her other stories. Um, because the, the, the fact is, is that she could pack so much into a sentence that would just be absolutely mesmerizing. Let's see. Um, let's go with this one. This is a part of Death of a Traveling Salesman. R.J. Bowman, who was 14 year, who for 14 years had traveled for a shoe company through Mississippi, drove his Ford along a rutted dirt path. 
It was a long day. The time did not seem to clear the noon hurdle and settle into soft afternoon. The sun, keeping its strength here even in winter, stayed at the top of the sky, and every time Bowman stuck his head out of the dusty car to stare up the road, it seemed to reach a long arm down and push against the top of his head, right through his hat, like the practical joke of an old drummer long on the road. It made him feel all the more angry and helpless. He was feverish, and he was not quite sure of the way. That tells you so much in one paragraph, R.J. Bowman. And it also obviously conveys that it's a story of its time. I mean, there are so few traveling salesmen, people don't need to travel anymore because of the internet. But, you know, the dirt road, the bearing down beating sun of the south, even in winter. Um, And that beautiful lyrical figurative language that she uses. And she doesn't use complicated diction either to convey it you know you know stuck his head out of the dusty car it seemed to reach its long arm down and push against the top of his head right through his hat like the practical joke of an old drummer long on the road it's like wow what a per you know the personification using that using that beautiful little simile there that just tells you what's going on or, or, or forces you to kind of figure out and then of course poor rj you know, you, you can tell by the title that this story is not really going to end well for him. <laughs> so much with so little. So much with so little, which is a, a, a characteristic of a great short story writer. But the story I want to read to you today and discuss very briefly is another one of her stories. It's my personal favorite story of hers. It's called A Worn Path. Uh, Eudora had a very interesting story about how this came to be, how this story came to be. She saw an older African-American woman, who is the centerpiece of this story, a woman by the name of Phoenix Jackson. We'll get to that later. Um, She saw a photo of an old African-American woman walking down the, walking through Jackson at one point. And she was very very old one of those african-american women who probably came from that generation who didn't even know the day of their birth and so just kind of lived just sort of almost existed without even having that sense of rootedness in their lives and eudora just asked a question where is that woman going what is she doing what's her what's her mission what's going on in her life which of course is what writers do we ask the question what we ask the question what if and so she asked the question what if with this african-american woman and she just put her into a story and started telling it herself and so that's what this story is about and it typifies so many beautiful things about eudora's writing style that i've touched on here and i think you're going to enjoy it so here it is this is eudora welty's own a worn path Eudora Welty. It was December, a bright frozen day in the early morning. Far out in the country there was an old Negro woman 
with her head tied in a red rag, coming along a path through the pine woods. Her name was Phoenix Jackson. She was very old and small, and she walked slowly in the dark pine shadows, moving a little from side to side in her steps, with the balanced heaviness and lightness of a pendulum and a grandfather clock. She carried a thin, small cane made from an umbrella, and with this she kept tapping the frozen earth in front of her. This made a grave and persistent noise in the still air that seemed meditative, like the chirping of a solitary little bird. She wore a dark, striped dress, reaching down to her shoe tops, and an equally long apron of bleached sugar sacks with a full pocket, all neat and tidy, but every time she took a step, she might have fallen over her shoelaces, which dragged from her unlaced shoes. She looked straight ahead. Her eyes were blue with age. Her skin had a pattern all its own of numberless branching wrinkles, and as though a whole little tree stood in the middle of her forehead, but a golden color ran underneath, and the two knobs of her cheeks were illumined by a yellow burning under the dark. Under the red rag, her hair came down on her neck in the frailest of ringlets, still black and with an odor like copper. Now and then, there was a quivering in the thicket. Old Phoenix said, Out of my way, all you foxes, owls, beetles, jackrabbits, coons, and wild animals. Keep out from under these feet, little bobwhites. Keep the big wild hogs out of my path. Don't let none of those come run in my direction. I got a long way. Under her small, black, freckled hand, her cane, limber as a buggy whip, would switch at the brush as if to rouse up any hiding things. On she went. The woods were deep and still. The sun made the pine needles almost too bright to look at, up where the wind racked. The cones dropped as light as feathers. Down in the hollow was the morning dove. It was not too late for him. The path ran up a hill. Seems like there is chains about my feet. Time I get this far, she said. In the voice of argument old people keep to use with themselves. Something always take a hold of me on this hill. Pleads, I should say. After she got to the top, she turned and gave a full, severe look behind her where she had come. Up through pines, she said at length, now down through oaks. Her eyes opened their widest, and she stared down gently, but before she got to the bottom of the hill, a bush caught her dress. Her fingers were busy and intent, but her skirts were full and long, so that before she could pull them free in one place, they were caught in another. It was not possible to allow the dress to tear. I and the thorny bush, she said, thorns you doing your appointed work. Never want to let folks pass, no, sir. Old eyes thought you was a pretty little green bush. Finally, trembling all over, she stood free, and after a moment dared to stoop for her cane. Sun so high, she cried, leaning back and looking while the thick tears went over her eyes. The time getting all gone here. At the foot of this hill was a place where a log was laid across the creek. Now comes the trial, said Phoenix. Putting her right foot out, 
She mounted the log and shut her little eyes, lifting her skirt, leveling her cane fiercely before her. Like a festival figure in some parade, she began to march across. Then she opened her eyes, and she was safe on the other side. I wasn't as old as I thought, she said. But she sat down to rest. She spread her skirts on the bank around her, and folded her hands over her knees. Up above her was a tree in a pearly cloud of mistletoe. She did not dare to close her eyes, and when a little boy brought her a plate with a slice of marble cake on it, she spoke to him. That would be acceptable, she said. But when she went to take it, there was just her own hand in the air. So she left that tree and had to go through a barbed wire fence. There she had to creep and crawl, spreading her knees and stretching her fingers like a baby trying to climb the steps. But she talked loudly to herself. She could not let her dress be torn now, so late in the day, and she could not pay for having her arm or her leg sawed off if she got caught fast here she was. At last she was safe through the fence and risen up in the clearing. Big, dead trees like black men with one arm were standing in the purple stalks of the withered cotton field. There sat a buzzard. Who you watchin'? In the furrow she made her way along. Glad this not the season for bulls, she said, looking sideways. And the good Lord made his snakes to curl up and sleep in the winter. A pleasure I don't see no two-headed snake coming round that tree where it come once. It took a while to get by him back in the summer. She passed through the old cotton and went into a field of dead corn. It whispered and shook. It was taller than her head. Through the maze now, she said, for there was no path. Then there was something tall, black, and skinny there moving before her. At first, she took it for a man. It could have been a man dancing in the field. But she stood still and listened, and it did not make a sound. It was as silent as a ghost. Ghost, she said sharply, who be you the ghost of? For I've heard of nary dead close by. But there was no answer, only the ragged dancing in the wind. She shut her eyes, reached out her hand, and touched a sleeve. She found a coat, and inside, an emptiness, cold as ice. You scarecrow, she said, her face lighted. I ought to be shut up for good, she said with laughter. My senses is gone. I too old. I the oldest people I ever know. Dance, old scarecrow, she said, while I dancing with you. She kicked her foot over the furrow, and with mouth drawn down, shook her head once or twice. In a little strutting way, some husks blew down and whirled in streamers about her skirts. Then she went on, parting her way from side to side with the cane through the whispering field. At last she came to the end, to a wagon track, where the silver grass blew between the red ruts. The quail were walking around like pullets, seeming all dainty and unseen. Walk pretty, she said. This the easy place. This the easy going. She followed the track, swaying through the quiet bare fields, through the little strings of trees silver in their dead leaves, past cabins silver from weather, 
and with the doors and windows boarded shut, all like old women under a spell sitting there. I walkin' in their sleep, she said, nodding her head vigorously. In a ravine she went where a spring was silently flowing through a hollow log. Old Phoenix bent and drank. Sweet gum makes the water sweeter, she said, and drank more. Nobody know who made this well, for it was here when I was born. The track crossed a swampy part, where the moss hung as white as lace from every limb. Sleep on, alligators, and blow your bubbles. Then the track went into the road. Deep, deep, the road went down between the high green-colored banks. Overhead, the live oaks met, and it was as dark as a cave. A black dog with a lollying tongue came up out of the weeds by the ditch. She was meditating, and not ready, and when he came at her, she only hit him a little with her cane. Over she went in the ditch, like a little puff of milkweed. Down there, her senses drifted away. A dream visited her, and she reached her hand up, but nothing reached down and gave her a pull. So she lay there and presently went to talking. Old woman, she said to herself, that black dog come up out of the weeds to stall your off, and now there he's sitting on his fine tail, smiling at you. A white man finally came along and found her, a hunter, a young man with his dog on a chain. Well, Granny, he laughed, what are you doing down there? Lying on my back like a June bug waiting to be turned over, mister, she said, reaching her hand up. He lifted her up, gave her a swing in the air, and set her down. Anything broken, Granny? No, sir. Them old dead weeds is springy enough, said Phoenix, when she had got her breath. I thank you for your trouble. Where do you live, Granny? he asked, while the two dogs were growling at each other. Away back yonder, sir behind the ridge. You can't even see it from here. On your way home? No, sir. I go into town. Why, that's too far. That's as far as I walk when I come out myself, and I got something for my trouble. He patted the stuffed bag he carried and then hung down a little closed claw. It was one of those bob whites with its beak hooked bitterly to show it was dead. Now you go home, Granny. I bound to go to town, mister, said Phoenix, the time come around. He gave another laugh, filling the whole landscape. I know you old color people wouldn't miss going to town to see Santa Claus. But something held old Phoenix very still. The deep lines in her face went into a fierce and different radiation. Without warning, she had seen with her own eyes a flashing nickel fall out of the man's pocket onto the ground. "'How old are you, Granny?' he was saying. "'There's no telling, mister,' she said. "'No telling.' Then she gave a little cry and clapped her hands and said, "'Get all away from here, dog. Look. Look at that dog.' She laughed as if in admiration. "'He ain't scared of nobody. He a big black dog,' she whispered. "'Sick him!' Watch me get rid of that cur, said the man. Sick him, Pete, sick him. Phoenix heard the dogs fighting and heard the man running and throwing sticks. She even heard a gunshot. 
but she was slowly bending forward by that time, further and further forward, the lids stretching down over her eyes as if she were doing this in her sleep. Her chin was lowered almost to her knees. The yellow palm of her hand came out from the fold of her apron. Her fingers slid down and along the ground under the piece of money with the grace and care they would in lifting an egg from under a setting hen. Then she slowly straightened up. She stood erect, and the nickel was in her apron pocket. A bird flew by. Her lips moved. God watching me the whole time I come to stealing. The man came back, and his own dog panted about them. Well, I scared him off that time, she said. And then he laughed and lifted his gun and pointed it at Felix. She stood straight and faced him. Doesn't the gun scare you, he said, still pointing it. No, sir. I've seen plenty go off closer by in my day, and for less than what I've done, she said, holding utterly still. He smiled and shouldered the gun. Well, Granny, he said, you must be a hundred years old and scared of nothing. I'd give you a dime if I had any money with me. But you take my advice and stay home and nothing will happen to you. I'm bound to go on my way, mister, said Phoenix. She inclined her head in the red rag. Then they went in different directions, but she could hear the gun shooting again and again over the hill. She walked on. The shadows hung from the oak trees to the road like curtains. Then she smelled wood smoke and smelled the river, and she saw a steeple in the caverns on their steep steps. Dozens of little black children whirled around her. There ahead was Natchez shining. Bells were ringing. She walked on. In the paved city it was Christmas time. There were red and green electric lights strung and crisscrossed everywhere, and all turned on in the daytime. Old Phoenix would have been lost if she had not distrusted her eyesight and depended upon her feet to know where to take her. She paused quietly on the sidewalk where people were passing by. A lady came along in the crowd carrying an armful of red, green, and silver wrapping presents. She gave off perfume like the red roses in hot summer, and Phoenix stopped her. Please, Missy, will you lace up my shoe? She held up her foot. What do you want, Grandma? See my shoe, said Phoenix. Do all right for out in the country, but wouldn't look right to go into a big building. Stand still then, Grandma, said the lady. She put her packages down on the sidewalk beside her and laced and tied both shoes tightly. Can't lace them with a cane, said Phoenix. Thank you, Missy. I doesn't mind asking a nice lady to tie up my shoe when I gets out on the street. Moving slowly and from side to side, she went into the big building and into a tower of steps where she walked up and around and around until her feet knew to stop. She entered a door, and there she saw nailed up on the wall the document that had been stamped with the gold seal and framed in the gold frame, which matched the dream that was hung up in her head. Here I be, she said. There was a fixed and ceremonial stiffness over her body. A charity case, I suppose, said an attendant, 
who sat at the desk before her. But Phoenix looked only above her head. There was sweat on her face. The wrinkles in her skin shone like a bright net. Speak up, Grandma, the woman said. What's your name? We must have your history, you know. Have you been here before? What seems to be the trouble with you? Old Phoenix only gave a twitch to her face as if a fly were bothering her. Are you deaf? cried the attendant. But then the nurse came in. Oh, that's just old Aunt Phoenix, she said. She doesn't come for herself. She has a little grandson. She makes these trips just as regular as clockwork. She lives way back off the old Natchez Trace. She bent down. Well, Aunt Phoenix, why don't you just take a seat? We won't keep you standing after your long trip, she pointed. The old woman sat down bolt upright in the chair. Now, how is the boy? asked the nurse. Old Phoenix did not speak. I said, how is the boy? But Phoenix only waited and stared straight ahead, her face very solemn and withdrawn into rigidity. Is his throat any better? asked the nurse. Aunt Phoenix, don't you hear me? Is your grandson's throat any better since the last time you came for the medicine? With her hands on her knees, the old woman waited, silent, erect and motionless, just as if she were in armor. You mustn't take up our time this way, Aunt Phoenix, the nurse said. Tell us quickly about your grandson and get it over. He isn't dead, is he? At last there came a flicker and then a flame of comprehension across her face, and she spoke. My grandson. It was my memory had left me. There I sat and forgot why I made my long trip. Forgot? the nurse frowned. After you came so far? Then Phoenix was like an old woman begging a dignified forgiveness for waking up frightened in the night. I never did go to school. I was too old at the surrender, she said in a soft voice. I'm an old woman without an education. It was my memory failed me. My little grandson, he's just the same, and I forgot it in the coming. Throat never heals, does it? said the nurse, speaking in a loud, sure voice to old Phoenix. By now, she had a card with something written on it, a little list. Yes, swallowed lie. When was it? January, two, three years ago? Phoenix spoke, unasked now. No, missy, he not dead. He just the same. Every little while, his throat began to close up again, and... You're not able to swallow. You're not get his breath. You're not able to help himself. So the time come round and I go on a trip for the soothing medicine. All right. The doctor said as long as you came to get it, you can have it, said the nurse. But it's an obstinate case. My little grandson, he sit up there in the house all wrapped up, waiting by himself, Phoenix went on. We is the only two left in the world. He suffer, and it don't seem to push him back at all. He got a sweet look. He going to last. He wear a little patch quilt and peep out holding his mouth open like a little bird. I remember so plain now. I'm not going to forget him again. No, the whole enduring time. I could tell him in front of all the others in creation. All right. 
The nurse was trying to hush her now. She brought her a bottle of medicine. Charity, she said, making a check mark in the book. Old Phoenix held the bottle close to her eyes and then carefully put it into her pocket. I thank you, she said. It's Christmas time, Grandma, said the attendant. Could I give you a few pennies out of my purse? Five pennies is a nickel, said Phoenix stiffly. Here's a nickel, said the attendant. Phoenix rose carefully and held out her hand. She received the nickel and then fished the other nickel out of her pocket and laid it beside the new one. She stared at her palm closely with her head on one side. Then she gave a tap with her cane on the floor. This is what come to me to do, she said. I go into the store and buy my child a little windmill they sells, made out of paper. You're going to find it hard to believe there's such a thing in the world. I'll march myself back where he waiting, holding it straight up in this hand. She lifted her free hand, gave a little nod, turned around, and walked out of the doctor's office. Then her slow step began on the stairs, going down. Like I said in the intro, Eudora Welty really loved to infuse very subtle references to uh, mythology in a lot of her fiction. And obviously the, the most overt reference in this story is Phoenix Jackson's name and how she sort of rises up out of those uh, moments. Uh, how she takes, you know, this older African-American woman who's clearly not well-to-do, may not even know how to tie her own shoes, um, is going blind, if not blind already, uh, and is so down on her luck and so poor that she has to make this long trek to a doctor's office in order to pick up medicine for her grandson. And can't even afford to let her uh, to, to, to get injured or anything because of, uh, because, because of the expense that it would cost, uh, or even allow her dress to get ripped. I mean, this is a woman who lives in pure, unadulterated poverty, and yet she, Eudora writes her with such amazing, beautiful dignity how she rises out of that to do this, perform this beautiful noble act of going to get her grandson's medicine but at the same time Eudora Eudora does something that's very very interesting she makes us wonder if Phoenix is all there there's the episode just after she's crossed the creek and by the way my episode we'll get to that in a second there's that episode where she gets across the creek she's already in the forest she somehow managed to get across, even though she feels like she's old and she's not agile enough to get across this log, but she somehow managed, manages to. And she sits down, and she has this moment where this little African-American kid, where this little kid comes over and offers her some marble cake. And then she reaches out, and it's not there. She's alone. She's back where she's really been. She's back where we've been with her. 
And it makes you wonder, is she remembering something? Is she hallucinating? Is she having a flashback? What's going on? Who is that child? Well, of course, once you find out that it's her grandson, it makes you think, well, maybe she's remembering her grandson. And then, of course, when you get to the end, and she kind of falls silent, and she's in that moment where she's not lucid, and she's not um, not all there, uh, when she's talking to the, the people at the doctor's office who treat her very condescendingly at that. Uh, they don't even <laughs> treat her incredibly condescendingly. You know, treat her like the charity case that she is. And what she does is she just, you know, zones out for a minute. And it just makes you wonder, is she is she fading into the ashes of dementia and Alzheimer's? And is she rising up each time to, to try and perform this last act? Which we don't even know. If it, considering that we know that she does this like clockwork in the summer and in the winter, uh, the summer by, you know, the fact that she mentions having to run into a snake in that one field and in the winter, you know, coming there, um, is she, is this something that's just been habituated into her? Is it a pattern that's been habituated into her and she's just having those lucid moments here and there, uh, or is she actually performing something despite that? We don't know. These are questions that Eudora Welty leaves unanswered about Phoenix, which I think is wonderful because it lets us sort of paint, it lets us finish the portrait in many ways. Now, I mentioned episode earlier. Again, Eudora Welty loves putting references to mythology into her work, and one could make the case that a worn path, in a way, is a southern... American literary version, a literary retelling of the Odyssey, minus all the fantastical happenings and just putting all the obstacles in her way to be obstacles that are that that somebody of her race and of her time would be and, and of her social standing at that time, somebody who was so poor. Uh, that these are obstacles that she just has to face on a regular basis. Having to cut through the rural woods because she doesn't have the money to have a car or a horse she can just ride in on the road. Um, having to, you know, make sure that, that her that the bushes don't tear her, her skirt and having to make sure that the barbed wire doesn't, um, you know, infect her with, uh, with tetanus. Uh, and you know, or gangrene or something worse, uh, and dealing with that white guy, you know, which give it up for her being brave. I mean, if somebody had pointed a shotgun in my face, I don't think I would have had, had the gumption to be as uh, ballsy as she was, standing her ground. And yet, she's also very tricky, also very tricky. So, in a way, she's very much like the character of Odysseus, uh, because. She has that interaction with the white man, with the gun, the white hunter dude, white hunter, <laughs> that white hunter dude, and um, he somehow loses that nickel from out of his pocket. Phoenix immediately sees it fall out of his pocket, goes and picks it, you know, distracts him by, by telling him to go sick, you know, sick the hunter's dog on. The other dog that attacked her, and didn't really attack her, but just kind of lunged at her and caused her to fall over into a ditch. Not fun. 
uh, but managed to trick him long enough and divert his attention long enough to pick up that nickel. <laughs> and then, of course, the white guy uh, who, who, you know, is, is sort of very passive-aggressively threatening her. Um, you know, obviously, probably because she's a woman, and po- possibly because of her age, is not treating her the, the way that he might have treated her if she were a man, even an older man. Um, you know, as he you know shoulders his gun and heads off, he tells her, you know, if I if I had any money on me, I'd give you a dime. And Phoenix, on the other hand, is standing there with the with his nickel, his stolen nickel in his pocket. And it, you know that was a trait of of you know a myth of the mythological character Odysseus in many ways, because Odysseus was known for being very sharp-witted as well as being an incredibly astute and powerful warrior. I mean, he survived the the war of Troy and is heading home and is just just wants to go home and has to in most cases. It's not, it's brains that outmatch brawn. He has to think his way out of certain problems. And in many ways, that's what Phoenix has to be as a character. She has to be smarter. She has to be sort of uh, wily, like a fox, almost. And, you know, to her credit, she makes it there. She somehow, uh, she makes it all the way there somehow without any trouble, despite being condescended to, being called grandma all the time, even though that's, she really is one. Um, and you can't help but finish that story and sort of admire her as a character. This is a woman, because in many ways, at least for me, Phoenix kind of reminds me of a lot of the people I know in in my home country of Honduras. You know, they're, they're these these people who may live in these sort of less-than-ideal, destitute circumstances, and yet they insist, insist on carrying themselves with this immense air of dignity and self-respect. They're not going to let people, people's attempts to degrade them bring them down. They're not going to allow their self-image and their self-esteem to be affected by, you know, the, the, the fell clutch of circumstance that they find themselves in, or people's, you know, less than kind words to them. They're just going to go through life with their head held high, no matter what. Uh, and for me, that's uh, it's a beautiful thing, and it's something amazing, and it, it just really is telling of Welty, Welty's ability to empathize with somebody who she just saw in passing, in that photograph and just just thought about her what would it be like to be that person uh, and what would it be like to live that kind of life in a time and a place where so many people will mistreat you and speak ill of you or speak down to you which is unpleasant and unbearable at times you know, and, and, you know, a, a well-to-do Southern white lady able to do that, I think that speaks very highly of her empathetic powers as a writer. And it's in, it's something that carries through pretty much all of her fiction. I mean, of all the books that I would recommend people get of Eudora Welty's, I would definitely recommend A Curtain of Green, which is her collection of short stories. It's the one that you can find A Worn Path in. It's the one that you can find, um... Death of a Traveling Salesman, Why I Live at the P.E.O., Petrified Man, all of these wonderful, wonderful short stories in one collection 
and it's incredible. It's a it's a true literary masterclass in the short story. And if you pick it up, I guarantee you will find something in it that will not disappoint you, because that's how good of a writer she is. And I just I feel so sad the fact that more people don't know about her, even though she, you know, was the recipient of multiple Pulitzer uh, multiple. Uh, oh, Henry Awards won the Pulitzer Prize at one point. I mean, it's just for the Optimist's daughter, and is a great master of capturing a place, capturing an atmosphere, capturing a mood, capturing a setting, capturing a time with just a few lines, and those gorgeous long sentences of hers, just absolutely wonderful. Hey, funny people, thanks for spending some time with me here on Four Cents a Podcast. Until next we meet, stay safe, stay healthy, and bear in mind the words of the great poet Langston Hughes, folks, birthing is hard and dying is mean, so get yourself a little lovin' in between. I'll see you next time.